Well, for once, we are going into an RBA meeting unsure of what the outcome is going to be. We'll look at the bond action ahead of that meeting and what the outcome could be. Whilst bond yields in Europe are being driven by the assumption that something will happen with the ECB's emergency purchase program at their meeting middle of the week. And the great China slowdown and the contagion from it. It's Tuesday, the 2nd of November, 2021. It's the morning call from NAB. Good morning. Well, equities in the US are mixed. We've got a 0.1% rise for the Nasdaq, a little under 0.1% uh, for the Dow. The S&P is down 0.2%. Uh, not great moves, and any enthusiasm earlier on seems to be starting to wane as the session goes on. Uh, the US dollar is down a little, thanks to a slight fall in the yen, but that's actually regained those losses. But we have seen a 0.2% fall in the pound, whilst the Aussie is up 0.1%, 72.2 US cents, and the euro has climbed 0.4%. And Oil is up 0.9% for Brent and 0.2% for WTI, both uh, just a little below $85 a barrel now. But what about bond yields? Well, 10 years are up two basis points in the US and Canada, three in the UK, but down 18 basis points for Australia, back down to 1.89%. Five years in Oz are down 21 basis points, two years down 7 to 0.65%. Those April 2024 bonds have paired back a little but they are still seven or eight times the uh, the target. But, of course, that seems to have gone by the wayside now. Uh, in fact, Rodrigo was saying, of course, yesterday the RBA will officially abandon yield curve control today. Let's get an update on that from Ray Atrell at NAB in Sydney, because today is the day, obviously, Ray. So what are they going to say? And what will happen to bonds, particularly if the RBA does bring forward expectations for rate rises today. That seems likely, doesn't it? Um, well, who knows, in the sense that we're all still you know, mm. having sort of summarily abandoned the, the YCC policy without so much as a, as a buy your leave last week. It does yeah. add to the uncertainties of exactly what the statement is going to say. But um, isn't that exciting, going into an RBA meeting, not actually knowing what's going to happen before it happens? That's right. I mean, I've that's got far more confidence in who's going to win the <laughs> Melbourne Cup than I have in what the RBA is going to say today. Um, but yes, I mean, it, it, it would be extraordinary if they sort of made any recommitment to YCC. I suppose there's a little bit of uncertainty. You know, would they potentially say, well, you know, we're going to target something with a with a uh, you know, a shorter duration than uh, than the April 2024. But, um, uh, you know, our overall sense, and again, as Rodrigo was saying yesterday, I think we're moving strictly to a, a state-based forward guidance. You know, the RBA has been clear that raising rates is conditional on both uh, achieving uh, inflation deemed to be sustainably inside the 2 to 3% target, um, and that that is unlikely to be realised without uh, wages growth being materially higher than it is currently. So I, I, I'm sure that, um, you know, that will continue to feature in the statements um, but whether there is also some kind of time-based forward guidance or not remains to be seen and, and uh, you know our sense would probably be be no in that sense and we've also got you know some uncertainty as to whether the current QE uh, policy of uh, of buying what four billion dollars of bonds a week at least through February next year will you know will will be maintained obviously if they were to sort of scale that back faster than uh, than the current plans that would really put the market on the scent of a you know of a 2022 rate rise which is not a, a not a call you know as we you know revised our thinking on the RBA in the note that we published last Friday you know we still think it's a 2023 story but obviously that's brought forward from uh, from 2024 so there's going to be lots of moving parts and also you know the RBA will flag the um, upgraded forecast to be published in Friday's statement on monetary policy. So um, a lot of interest there, but the bottom line is you would think 
that they'll say that uh, there is now a scenario based on their new forecasts where um, the conditions for rate rises will fall into place earlier than the previous guidance. I was asking yesterday about, you know, is there a bit of a credibility gap in all of this? Because they'll be saying, well, okay, this is where we think inflation's going, this is where we think employment's going, that therefore this is when we think we'll be looking at uh, raising rates. I mean, uh, people will be going, well, okay, that's just your take. The the market has a a completely different read to them on all of this. Oh, absolutely. And I think that's been the the issue, if you like, that, uh, you know, as I've been sort of saying to people internally, is that you've got an RBA that is uh, is admitting to, um, to the error of its ways, if you like, in terms of the difficulty it's had in inaccurately forecasting uh, the key variables that are going to drive policy, which is why it's saying that, um, you know, we are not rather than making policy based on a forecast, we're going to make policy based on the actuality of what happens with inflation uh, and then giving forward guidance, which is based on a forecast, which nobody believes. So, um, you know, in that sense, you know, we're going to have a new set of forecasts and then, you know, the market will be within its rights, I suppose, to say, well, why should we believe these ones any more than the last set? But, um, um, you know, that said, they're clearly, you know, if, 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 you know, we're losing that forward guidance, then, you know, presumably there has to be some forecasts that uh, will say that, you know, we do now think that there is a greater risk that we'll be moving on rates earlier than we had previously indicated. And particularly when we're seeing wage inflation all around the world and thinking it's not going to happen in Australia as quickly. I mean, you know, if you look at the evidence, I mean, there's got to be a question mark over that. No, absolutely. And that's what we've been saying. I mean, obviously, and and the now business surveys, you know, have been showing mostly localised wage pressures. But, um, you know, given everything that's happening, we are now of the view that, um, you know, we are going to to see more wage inflation and you only have to look at you know look at the US look at the UK look at New Zealand and it's clear yeah. that um, you know wage inflation has been uh, has been a significant uh, factor behind the shift in in thinking strange, about uh, central it? bank policy because you'd look at the job ads that we saw uh, yesterday for Australia up 6.2% month on month but you know we we know that there's loads of jobs ads in the US as well but people are actually using that as a chance to move jobs and ask for more money. You know, this great resignation that they're calling it, the story of a former right. Americans leaving their jobs in August. And there's a survey in the UK that was out today or uh, overnight uh, showing that almost a quarter of workers in the UK are actively planning to switch jobs in the next few months. Now, that same survey normally uh, is half that rate. So, uh, yeah, people are seeing it as an opportunity to... Uh, and so, uh, some of it, I think, is people have been working long hours and so they're jack of it. So, so they want to go and work. No, absolutely. And there have been... There have been surveys one of the consultants or the county firms would came out with a survey um here um that I was uh, tuning into over the weekend, saying exactly the same thing: that the number of people mm. that are planning to uh, to shift jobs, whether that is you know, it's for lifestyle reasons in terms of you know how they've lived the last eighteen months, and saying, do I really want to go back, you know, hack it into the uh, into the into the big smoke for uh, for twelve hours a day, or do, you know, is there something that's a little bit more uh, you know, a little bit I, more comfortable in terms of yeah. work life balance? So um, you know, or more- you know, or is it simply going to be companies saying, well, why should I come and work in your restaurant when? Um, the guy next door is going to offer me um, 5% higher wages. So uh, that is obviously where those wage pressures people might start to, to show up a little bit um, yeah. as we go people, through next year. People want to work for less and get paid more. That's uh, that's <laughs> that's where it is, isn't it? Now, look, Guy DeBell from, <laughs> De from the RBA is going to be talking today, but he's he's talking at the Impact X Summit, which is all about the pathway to zero emissions. I wonder if he's going to get sidetracked by talking about the situation that we're seeing with, with bonds right now. Time will tell on that. But let, let's look at bonds in Europe. Uh, a lot of movement now in Italy, Spain and Portugal, uh, not so much in Germany. So uh, some of this is to do with the ECB later in the week, isn't it? Because if, if we see an end to the PEP program, to the emergency pandemic purchase program, a lot of that's been buying up bonds in those markets. So I guess that's why we're seeing the response. 
No, that's exactly why. So, uh, you know, obviously, we don't know exactly what the fate of the uh, of the Pepe is, or whether there is going to be, you know, something that will uh, that will effectively replace it within the, you know, the old school pre pandemic asset purchase program. Um, so, I'm sure that um, you know the ECB will, will will want to give itself the flexibility to do that. But um, you know, the mood music seems to be to uh, to formally abandon the Pepe next year, and. Um, as you say, the main beneficiary of that has been euro peripheral yields, which is why they're, uh, you know, they're showing bigger rises than we're seeing in um, in benchmark bond yields elsewhere in the, you know, the eurozone as well as elsewhere in now, the world. I mentioned movement on the on the yen, which uh, was uh, well, it sort of rebounded back again actually as the session's gone on. But we've also seen uh, the Nikkei up two point six percent today. This is on the back of the news that we mentioned on the podcast yesterday. The the exit polls were showing that Kishida the sort of relatively new uh, Japanese prime minister has uh, has been voted in uh, again. Uh, so, I mean, there is a material difference to this, isn't there? Because uh, his opposition was calling for more spending, consumption tax cuts. He doesn't need to pacify them now because he's got a majority. So, uh, no, I think that I is, the, no, I think that the market has, that, that message has not been lost on the market because mm. the view going into this was that, um, you know, whether the LDP was actually going to get an outright majority at all or whether they were going to have to, uh, to govern, um, you know, in, in collaboration with what's been their traditional sort of junior coalition partner, which means some of those, yeah, party members may have, uh, chairs, you know, chairs on, on some of the committees, for example, and that could certainly potentially dilute some of the um you know the new government's um, ambitions particularly with regards to extra budgets and as you say wanting to try and lift wages as well so um you know the market was certainly cheered by the fact that um you know the new government will be able to do pretty much exactly what it wants to do as you say 2.6 percent rise for the Nikkei was very much at odds with what we saw in uh, in, in asian bourses in general yesterday so um you know a strong uh, stock market in japan and a weak yen tend to go hand in hand and to some extent they feed off each off each other because as the yen weakens it uh, you know it makes uh, exports more competitive as far as uh, Japanese firms are concerned so there can be a little bit of a um, you know self-reinforcing bit of a virtuous circle there and that's certainly what we saw with um, the yen being the weakest currency so although the US dollar you know was stronger um, overnight and you normally sort of that's sort of synonymous with a risk-off sentiment that wasn't really the case it was all yen weakness driven by Nikkei strength but uh, we have given back a, a fair bit of that overnight obviously. Now, the China slowdown, uh, is it infectious or contagious, I should say, with the uh, the Cajun manufacturing PMI? Uh, actually, slightly better than the official numbers we saw at the weekend, but they were, uh, but they were bad. But the, the Cajun number was bad on steel production. Uh, and uh, I ask if it's contagious because uh, we saw a big drop in, in new orders in the US uh, ISM numbers overnight. No, that's right. I would sort of, I probably would conflate all those things there. So, um, yes. Yeah, so you'd already talked yesterday morning about the official uh, PMIs, and then you know after that yesterday morning we had first the, the, the steel PMI, which as you know really you know really did fall back quite sharply. The weakest I think since two thousand and fifteen, when it was only briefly down at uh, the levels that we saw yesterday, and, and clearly that's symptomatic of the travails of the property sector, which is you know the biggest single consumer of uh, of steel in uh, in China and the world, in fact. 
Um, now, the Kaizen manufacturing PMI did lift to 50.6 from 50.0. Um, probably the Kaizen one's more reflective of what's happening with small companies, but also some of the exporters. So, um, you know, one way to think about this is, well, we'll add up the official one and the Kaizen one and divide by two. And the answer is 49.9, which means that the manufacturing <laughs> sector uh, is, is technically in, in sort of outright contraction. So, um, um, you know, I'm not sure that it is actually contracting, but certainly, you know, it's sub 50. So it's still a, a bad news story as far as the um, as the manufacturing sector is concerned. And as you say, looking at the US ISM, although the headline number um, was a little better than expected at uh, what 60.8, that was down from 61.1 in uh, September. The new orders component has fallen to 59.8 from 66.7. So still in expansion ter territory, but um, that's the weakest we've had since the middle of 2020 and um, you know a combination I think of ongoing supply chain disruptions um, you know as one uh, one observer so dryly noted this morning why bother ordering something that isn't going to arrive anytime soon but also the read through from the weakness that we're seeing in China and particularly things like the China import PMI through to the US and other parts of the world is uh, does look as though it's um, it's starting to to feed through with a sort of two to three month lag which is pretty normal historically so um, a warning yeah. sign there, I think that um, you know China's uh, China's current sneezes have the potential to create a bit of a cold in other parts of the world. Well, the other thing is, why bother ordering something now if you think the price is going to be lower later because there's a, a lack of supply? So, I mean, it's you know there's the inflation thing in all of that as well, isn't there? Look, let's look at Aussie house prices; they're still rising, but finance approvals are down. So, are they rising because there's a lack of stock, and so people just aren't bothering to apply for finance uh, right now because the uh, the house isn't there for them? Uh, who knows? Meanwhile, New Zealand house prices, Governor Orr from the RBNZ is going to be talking about them today, given that the average house price in New Zealand is now close to $1 million. Uh, they've got their financial stability report as well uh, tomorrow, so that's something to look out for. Look, politics, very quickly, uh, we really don't have time to discuss this, but take your pick. The US versus China, because, of course, uh, the US and, and China are now debating uh, the whole question about recognition of uh, the One China policy and uh, the, the existence of Taiwan as, as, as part of China. And uh, Mr Macron is battling it out uh, with Scott Morrison, calling him a liar, uh, Whilst in the UK they're battling over fishing rights, which is getting out of control. I mean, it's possible that they'll uh, actually start increasing checks on goods to and from Britain through Calais as a result of this. I wonder whether that's part of what's hurting the pound today. Well, we have been we have been saying that uh, you know the, the risk of tariffs is, is one of the reasons that we have a negative view on sterling, and uh, and, and in Australia, you know, the uh, the free trade talks have been put back. Uh, again to at least February so there certainly are some market consequences from this uh, political shenanigans well, going on well, at the moment we'll see how all that unfolds today also COP26 obviously going on in Glasgow as well we, but everyone is really getting ready for the ECB and the Fed later in the week it's a hellishly busy week isn't it it is indeed and uh, and, uh, and of course floating artist is my uh, is my pick for the cup you haven't asked me but um you know, my in, in, uh, immense knowledge and, uh, and research is suggesting that um, that's where the money should be today. Well, we will have a massive disclaimer, which basically states Ray Actual doesn't know what he's talking about. Uh, <laughs> that's it for today. on oh, the horse racing, of course. That's it for today. Thanks, Ray. Catch you soon. Will do. Thanks, Ray. And good luck to you if you have a flutter on the Melbourne Cup this afternoon. I'm back again tomorrow morning with another edition of The Morning Call. I'm Phil Dobby for NAB. See you then.